Hi, guys, it's Dr. Sadaf, and I would love for you to like and share this podcast and make sure you leave me a review. I'd love those five stars. So please, when you send me a review, please make sure to put the five stars in and to share the episode with somebody that you know that could really use it. And I would absolutely appreciate it. Also, if you're looking to schedule an appointment with me, make sure you go to my email and put your name on the email list. You will be the first to know when I open up my office in spring of 2024. It's drsadaf.com. And last but definitely not the least, September 16th to the 23rd, 2024, I will be hosting a retreat with Dr. Basma Ferris in Morocco. You will be getting yoga and coaching and we'll be doing excursions and cooking and spa and hammam and all of that great stuff along with meditation. So make sure you don't miss out. Spots are limited. So go to the link in my bio in both Instagram and TikTok to make sure you register. Enjoy the show. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Salafloti, and this episode is everything you need to know about cognitive behavioral therapy and its uses with perhaps past trauma experiences or difficulties with intimacy and all of that good stuff. Before we get started, I want to make one thing very clear is that I'm not giving any type of medical advice. So if you have any questions about your health, please speak with your healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So I am so excited to have on with me today, Dr. Sanjana Kareem. Dr. Kareem joins us from the Bay Area in California. Welcome, Dr. Kareem. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yes. And thanks for covering this really important topic. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So please, for all the listeners and viewers out there that may not know you, please introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Okay. Um, so I'm Sanjana Kareem. I'll tell you a little bit about my uh, background. I did my undergraduate studies in biology, Africana studies. I got my medical degree from Georgetown University, and I went on to do residency in psychiatry and a resident fellowship in public policy from George Washington. Um, I'm dual board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, as well as the American Board of Preventive Medicine. Um, I'm the founder and director of Peace Tree Mental Health, um, a psychiatry and psychotherapy practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. I see people, um, um, patients in the Bay Area, as well as through telemedicine throughout the state of California. I have um, additional training in um, Psychodynamic, psychodynamic psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, trauma-informed uh, trauma therapy such as EMDR, um, addiction-informed therapy, and I am also trained in traditionally integrated Islamic psychotherapy. Wow, that's amazing that we needed like a whole podcast just for all of your credentials. That's fantastic. Wow, I had no idea you were so 
really well overqualified. So this is fantastic. Amazing. So tell me, you know, I, I know that, you know, as a coach, so I'm a coach and I do intimacy coaching. And oftentimes what I see is, you know, patients that have uh, sex negative beliefs, right? A lot of oftentimes they'll exhibit those in their bodies. And when they try to become uh, intimate with somebody, you know, their body reacts and then they're not able to. For example, you know, case in point with vaginismus. I've talked about vaginismus a few times on this podcast. And um, I think that vaginismus is a really good example of what can happen when we have either experienced trauma or um, we we hold sex negative beliefs, uh, whether or not we're aware of it, but our body anticipates the fear. And for those that may not remember what vaginismus is, vaginismus is the tightening of the muscles in the vulva region um, in anticipation of pain due to fear. And, you know, that fear may be due to, you know, the sex negative beliefs that they grew up with, or like I said before, it could be the trauma that they experienced. And so then that shows up in their body when they're trying to become sexually intimate, or even just having a pelvic exam, or putting a tampon in any of those things, right? Those your your body I'll trigger is some of these some, some of these right, same physical right. responses. Exactly. So so you know, I'd love for you to explain perhaps the psychodynamics of what exactly is going on and how cognitive behavioral therapy, because that's usually what I use to help mm-hmm. patients yes. um, that have these issues. But I'd love to hear your take. Sure. I mean, um, vaginismus and a lot of um, intimacy-related physical challenges um, are a really good example of the duality of the mind-body connection, right? There's a psychological and a physical component to this. And this is a very common issue I see, not just in the Muslim community, but in general um, amongst women. And you know, tra- there's a ve- very often trauma associated with it. There's sexual trauma. And then also there's uh, women who have grown up to uh, or come up in society or in their families to have a negative um, understanding of sex sometimes. And that can become very challenging when they're in a marriage and when they're in a sexual relationship. And um, so cog- I'll tell you a little bit about how, what the cognitive behavioral therapy for this yes. looks like. Yes. And what, what cognitive behavioral therapy is actually a good way to describe it. There's two components to it. Cognitive, where we kind of talk through it logically and understand kind of logically the beliefs people carry and how that affects. And the behavioral component, uh, which is, you know, the automatic emotions, the automatic um, uh, actions and responses people have sometimes. Um, and there is a very strong behavioral component to this. And that is sometimes a large part of where we focus on in, in cognitive behavioral therapy and CBT for issues like this. Um, for example, if we kind of go a little bit more into the neurobiology of it, we, we talk about there's two components, a shame-based and fear-based conditioning. Um, and the, the part of the brain that holds a lot of fear, fear of, of survival, and holds those fear memories is the amygdala. And how you respond to a memory that's triggered in the amygdala uh, and that fear-based part of the brain is very different from where we, um, um, wh- how we respond to memories that are held in um, our cognitive, our higher, higher functioning brain, um, the, the, the hippocampus, and also just in general, like our, our frontal lobe or our executive functioning is more in charge when we have memories that are kind of just factual 
um, and memories that are not very, very emotionally uh, loaded. And the amygdala brain, that's kind of also where the, the smell receptor um, sometimes triggers it as well. And trauma, it's there to protect us, right? When the caveman first saw a bear or first saw a predator, you know, the smell, the sights triggers the amygdala. And uh, after a trauma or after some sort of traumatically held beliefs, um, when, when that part of the brain is activated, you know, the responses physically and emotionally um, happen at zero to 60 right away. Right. So a lot of times women come and they say, well, I don't know, like I can't even get started um, with some of these actions because the, the, act, the, the response happens before I even think about it. You know, I have I have the physical response. I have the vaginismus. I have the heart racing. Um, I have the immediate um, emotional response that I don't want. And I want a different emotional response. So re, so how do we re gear that uh, not just cognitively, but especially emotionally and behaviorally. And a large part of that is looking at it through processing um, processing these stimuli differently. And a huge part of what we don't hear enough about is for women, physical and emotional intimacy is much closer linked than for men. And especially women with trauma or sex negative beliefs, um, the idea of emotional intimacy and building emotional intimacy with your partner is so important. Um, and, you know, we, we've always heard, you know, it's good to you know, have those times um, where you're building emotional intimacy, having times where you're talking and being playful with each other. And there's a huge, there's a huge emphasis of it, even in our dean. If you go back to our traditions, um, even in our early scholars, uh, in terms of مختصر من al qasidin. So in, if you go back uh, in our tradition, to, even to early scholars um, in books such as this, we discuss uh, they discuss um, sexual etiquette and um, building character through how uh, how we interact sexually with our um, with our spouses and some of the directives are really to build playfulness between the, the spouses and we're not just talking about physical playfulness but emotional playfulness and if we look at the intimacy that was there between our rasulullah and his wives you know he Things like when we hear that he had he 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 let them comb his hair, you know they fed each other, um, they played with each other. He raced with Aisha radiallahu anha, and we think about these, and we think about how we think about we think so much more formally about the husband wife relationship now, about the sexual relationship now, and that's kind of not um, that's not necessarily sexually healthy. Sexually healthy is to really build build that emotional intimacy and really see that as the gateway. Uh, gateway to um, sexual intimacy. And that does do a lot in terms of um, separating the automatic behavioral responses that's, uh, that trauma uh, may have created to sex, sex, sexual acts. And then the second part, um, the playfulness that goes, um, that goes with um, physical intimacy and then having foreplay. You know, there's not enough emphasis sometimes on foreplay. Um, when people are thinking about you know, being newly married or um, having sex for the first time after their wedding, they're thinking about going right into it. And they're not thinking a lot about foreplay, thinking that you, know, you have to be experienced and you have to know a lot about this. And women are sometimes even told off against foreplay. And if you kind of go back to our uh, old text, talks about you know, men really emphasize, emphasizing, especially for men, that you know, women, for women, it, foreplay is very important to always spend a lot of time in foreplay to make it, uh, to make it comfortable for the spouse. 
And the idea of really exploring early on in your relationship and early at every stage in your relationship, what you like, what you don't like, and expressing it uh, to your uh, to your spouse is really important. And these things really do help uh, decouple um, that trauma reaction with sex. And then slowing down when you do notice that there's a quick response happening, backing away and really building that emotional intimacy again and going back to foreplay. Um, these are important things. And then also the other emphasis that was made, and you know, there's no haya in Dean. The other emphasis is um, on uh, continuing playfulness and continuing some of the act after um, after the man has uh, reached completion because there is emphasis on the fact that sometimes it is more challenging for for the woman to re reach her completion even if it's the second time around and to not you know to not uh, finish the act until you've provided for your wife as well right so wow. these, things, these things are very important and yeah. then in terms of um, uh, for women who do have a very physical response, the idea of gradual desensitization, you know, you know slowly um, ha having acts proceed very, very slowly and having small exposure to the sexual acts and backing away um, and kind of reach, rewiring the brain for sex and rewiring the brain for positive intimacy. Mm hmm. It's fantastic. So you've said so much and, um, you know, I, I'd love to unpack that a little bit. So you talk about, you know, changing the thoughts that then will change your feelings, which which will then change your actions as to what happens. Exactly. Yes. You know, kind of like the base, the base model of CBT right there. Right. And sometimes right. it's like thoughts, feelings, actions. Um, that's more of a cognitive component, too. But the behavioral component sometimes just runs very quickly. Right. Um, that, that's the part we have sometimes explained to women, too. It's not just kind of talking through it. So a lot of times we and um, talking through it is very important. The, the thoughts, behaviors, actions, um, re, kind of um, reprocessing it with a therapist, reprocessing it with someone who, who you trust um, is very therapeutic because that is something sometimes people aren't very sure about. They'll come to me and they will express doubt. Like, what if I, if I bring some of these negative beliefs to the front forefront or if I believe, bring some of these negative memories of my past or traumas of my past, will I not be worse off? And the truth is, yes, you do have to have someone who's experienced, who knows kind of how to um, have someone process it in a safe way um, that doesn't trigger uh, relapses um, in terms of worsening of their current state or worsening of their emotions. But they're, they're, even neurobiologically, we can see why cognitive behavioral therapy makes sense for traumas. But, uh, and you have to be very careful with sexual trauma because it can um, lead to re-experiencing. But if it's done correctly, um, it, it, what it does is you actually recode the memories uh, very often. We've seen it um, even um, in studies that you kind of recode it from the, the amygdala doesn't light up anymore as much when you're looking at PET scans you're, um, of the brain. Yeah, the other parts of the brain, the higher brain lights up when you're thinking about sex, when you're thinking about intimacy. Whereas in the beginning, um, the fear center is lit up and that leads to like that fight and flight response. And that leads to that fear-based response. And um, very often women aren't really conscious of it being a fear-based response. Sometimes they say, I was really doing well and then the vaginismus just started up. But they are... It, it, it's not, there's not a thought process that leads to it. It's sometimes a very simple memory. It's, it, it triggers a memory, it triggers a response, it triggers a fight or flight, and that also can be retrained. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit different than the, um, the cognitive component. 
Um, although the com cognitive component in therapy is very helpful too, because then you're kind of addressing the root of the issue. You're actually slowly recoding it somewhere else and so that you're less likely to get that automatic cognitive, automatic behavioral response. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. You know, you had mentioned earlier about um, basically in Islam, how important it is for both of the spouses to experience pleasure in their relationship. And, um, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people um, that are Muslim, one, probably don't even know about, to be honest, uh, because I feel that a lot of us don't really know our uh, Islamic history with Islam and erotology, right? There was a uh, strong connection and there was even a book called Ilm al ba which is about um, eroticism and uh, you know Islam's relationship with it. And there are lots of scholars in history that have written books about it and about the importance of both of the partners being satisfied. And you t you also spoke of a tradition of the Prophet peace be upon him that um, talks about you know if a man climaxes orgasms, then it's important for him to stay and make sure that the wife also uh, mutually orgasms. And I think that those are very important that's things. Specifically, um, that's specifically more from like what we call adab al, um, adab al jima, uh, sexual okay. etiquette um, okay. in early Islam. not from that book. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the idea is still there. That yeah, yes, idea of emotional intimacy, intimacy, taking care of your wife's needs, not just um, physically, but emotionally as well. I mean, right. we, we, we read the hadith about, you know, the prophet noticing when one of his wives is upset without them telling them, tell me what's wrong. And then kind of coaxing them more, you know, is it, have you, you know, is it your time? You know, have you reached your menses? And he doesn't leave them, right? Um, um, he cuddles with them afterwards. Right, right. No, I think that all of these things are, are so important. I think it's also important to realize that, um, you know, for for people that experience trauma, I think that it's important to understand that there is a way that you can go about moving past that. And, you know, for those that have a hard time with relationships to also build that emotional and physical intimacy with their partner. We know that, I don't know, have you heard of uh, Rosemary Basson who um, created that the female sexual response cycle and it's actually a circular model. I know that, um, I don't know if you remember, but we, uh, in medical school, we learned the Masters and Johnson one, which is that linear model, right? Which mm -hmm. shows us about the, or the excitement, the orgasm, um, the, plat the plateau, then the orgasm, then the resolution. But in Rosemary Basson's female sexual response cycle, she places a big emphasis on emotional intimacy as well as you know the um, the sexual stimuli and how obviously women will experience. So what she did is in 2001, we didn't have um, the sexual response for women all throughout. And, you know, as you know, with most of medicine, right, all yeah. of our research has been based on men. men. And so in 2001, she created this female sexual response cycle where she included, you know, she talks a little bit about spontaneous um desire and she also talks about responsive desire and stating that responsive desire uh happens as a 
more commonly in people that are in long-term relationships and that, you know, it's not usually what is portrayed in the media where, you know, people are ripping off each other's clothes and this and that, but it's more that, you know, it's the emotional intimacy that also plays into it. And that oftentimes uh, women will have a sexual stimuli and then they will have either desire or arousal, either one or the other will come and then they will, you know, become physically intimate with that partner. But if they have that emotional connection, then that physical connection is, you know, it's, um, it means more. Yeah. It, it results in a more sexually satisfying experience when they have that emotional intimacy. So I like how you also connect that with the emotional intimacy and how important it is to build that emotional intimacy with your partner and how that can help with things such as vaginismus or um, issues that we may be having when it comes to sex. Yeah, in our traditional medical education, I admit, in medical school and in traditional medicine, you know, right now, even right now, like mm -hmm. you said, a lot of the focus is on uh, the male sexual cycle. And even if you look at, you know, big pharma and the data we have, uh, it's all around um, male orgasms. Even um, data, when they collect data in studies for sexual side effects of medications, it's actually based on male response, yes. addressing um, 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 males reaching sexual satisfaction. And, you know, if you look at the market, even for medication or treatments, it's based on men. And a lot of the models of sexual arousal and satisfaction we've learned is based on male. Yes. Um, um, male sexual models. And I think one of the things that um, we are, we don't become very aware of or um, teach people about is the idea of um, sexual satisfaction, how much it's linked to not, not just like um, having strong emotional connections, but for women feeling, um, feeling emotionally and psychologically safe. Um, yes. And, you know, th that can definitely come with the safety of a relationship lasting a time, but it can also, you know, come be established very early on in a, in a relationship. If there's emphasis placed on m making you feel emotionally cared for, making you feel emotionally safe and things like, you know, building affection, building playfulness, building trust, um, these are very key things in having a very satisfying and healthy sexual life. Yeah, no, absolutely. What would you say would be like a key component of whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or working through the trauma that a patient has had? What do you think would be like a key um, step or ingredients to overcoming that trauma and, you know, processing it and accepting it, but then also being able to move on? Um, I think there's a lot of keys, but if I had to um, pick one, I think um, the idea of hope, I think I see a lot of women who really think it's not for them or, you know, they're not somebody who can um, experience happiness and joy um, emotionally and especially physically within, a, um, within marriage and within a, the relationship. And the idea of hope and, you know, going into whether you're in the beginning of a relationship or you're, you know, much later into your relationship, but there's always hope to really re, um, uh, reframe your view and your experience of sex and your in experience of intimacy. Mm -hmm. 
That's great. What would you say some of the other things are? You said that there were multiple, so I'd love to hear what the other things are. I think the other thing is, you know, um, you know, I, I mentioned early on in terms of like the strong emotional visceral reactions. One is fear, and the other one is shame. Um, and yeah. that, you know, that shame is, you know, very. We we know the shame is coupled a lot of times with sexual trauma in women, but it's also sometimes coupled with, um, in general, societies, whether it's you know the Western society we've grown up in, or whether it's um, ideas that we may have from uh, our um, uh, culture of origin, the idea of shame um, around sex and or shame around your own experiences in the past or your own traumas um, and really being able to address those and really great, gaining strength, um, I think, through um, there's a spiritual dimension to um, sexual intimacy, the fact that it's given to us um, as a mercy and it's given to us as a place of um, resting our hearts and resting our souls within each other. Um, the way we see sex, um, we can re we can reframe it spiritually and reframe it as um, th there's a saying that, you know, it is sometimes Allah's way of giving us one experience of Jannah. Um, and for a lot of women, that hasn't been the case with, you know, sexual with, with sexual intimacy and understanding that there 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 is a purpose um, and there is an intent for us to enjoy this and that it is possible. Mm hmm. I love the fact that you talk about hope because mm -hmm. I agree. I think that a lot of times when uh, women may be experiencing some type of sexual dysfunction, you know, whether it's with arousal or orgasm or it's pain with intercourse, right? A lot of times women will come in with pain with intercourse. I think that that is oftentimes they've seen several providers and nobody's been able to help them. And so they start to lose hope that they can ever have a sexually satisfying experience or that they'll ever be without pain or that they'll ever be able to experience orgasm or such. And I think that being able to give people hope is one of the things that allows them to move forward with their relationships, but also in their sexual experiences. So I think that that really is key. And I think establishing, you know, emotional intimacy that you spent a little bit of time on, I think is so important as well. Um, what other things do you think might make cognitive behavioral therapy also important for somebody that's been experiencing sexual dysfunction for a long time? Yeah, I think sometimes it's um, related to the relationship itself, you know, yeah. um, so and how, um, how what, what the dynamics are within that relationship and what you've associated with um, intimacy in, within that relationship and how secure you feel with your spouse. Um, and so I think sometimes working on how you see the relationship and um, the safety both of you feel within the relationship and adjusting that working on the relationship um, can there's, there's definitely a holistic approach to this, right? A multifactorial approach. And I think working on the relationship um, can also be very, very helpful in terms of um, finding a more satisfying sexual experience. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder what would you tell the person that has grown up with sex negativity? I think a lot of people grow up with the idea that, you know, sex is shameful, it's wrong, it's dirty, and you don't, you know, you don't talk about it. And so when that happens, I think that people don't learn about it, right? And then yeah. perhaps the avenues that they may have to learn about because they're so embarrassed um, that they, you know, either turn to porn or to other resources that may or may not be accurate. And I think that that also distorts their vision about what um, yeah. sex is and what a satisfying sexual experience should be. 
Yeah, I think that porn especially can, um, I think can can hold a lot of danger. And this is not just within our community, but even outside. Sometimes people get the impression that you know if they have negative views about sex or negative or their sexual experience isn't satisfying, that um, porn is an avenue where they can maybe come back, get ideas, um, and it can maybe uh, make the relationship healthier or strengthen it. Uh, and in reality, what it, what it, it can actually be very detrimental to the real physical relationship, not just because of um, having like outside stimulus, but also because it gives very unrealistic yes. um, and inaccurate ideas of what sex is um, and yeah. takes a lot of emotional intimacy out of it. Um, and a lot of it is based on only, I think, one side, um, you know, one side of um, one side of like, one side of the partners getting satisfied. But also, you know, both men and women str struggle with porn addictions, but it's much more common. Um, amongst men and it can have a very negative um, it can have a very negative impact um in the um in the real sexual relationship um in terms of expectations but also um genuine interest um in each other in terms of emotional intimacy and genuine and it, it actually decreases um a lot of times the um sex drive outside of outside of um, the porn the, the porn aspect Sure, sure. And I think, you know, when you talk about unreal expectations, I think also... I always, and I always ask when people are having issues like this, I ask about the porn component. Um, and very yeah. frequently, it, it is an issue. Right, right. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, when if when people it's talk very about harmful when, when there's a partner watching the porn and the other partner has it especially the woman has a, a trauma history or a sex negative um, uh, perception of sex, it actually worsens that. Right, right. Yeah, I can see that because, you know, as as we know, when with porn, it's it's like you're watching a show, right? It's like a, a whatever, a TV show or a Broadway show, whatever it is, because the actors aren't real. people, you know, those people are acting. It's not real. It's just nothing about it is real. And so exactly what you say when people then, you know, they watch that porn and then they think that they're perhaps their sex life is going to look like that, which it definitely would not look like whatever it is that they're watching, um, you know, then then it really causes a strain in the relationship. It causes a breakdown in communication. And then, you know, if one person is watching it more than the other or if the other person's not watching it at all, then it becomes, I think, shameful for the person that is watching it. And then they feel guilty. And there's there's so many things. There's so many components around it. And I think that, you know, in the end, I don't know how much it is actually helping that relationship. Um, and like you said, it may really be just harming it and making that relationship worse where, you know, it, it leads to more and more separation in the sense of any type of emotional connection between the two of them. And then as we both talked about before, when you don't have that emotional intimacy, when you don't have that communication, when you don't have that connection, you're not going to want that physical intimacy. Yeah. Right. So as we are finishing up, what if you were to give advice to somebody, somebody that's perhaps struggling with their sexuality, perhaps they grew up in a sex negative environment, perhaps they never even had any conversation about it and they just don't know what to do. And they are experiencing a lot of these physical reactions anytime they start to become intimate. What would you tell them? 
I think, you know, if, you know, for someone like that, the first message I want them to get out, if they get nothing out of this, I want the, I, the first message I want them to get out of this is it can be very, very different. And that it's a very, you know, looking at sex in a much more holistic way uh, and looking at sex um, as something that, you know, we're, you know, we're entitled to sexual satisfaction. You know, it is one of the rights of marriage for both partners uh, to be sexually satisfied. Because a lot of times we see it upon, as a duty. And yes, if you think about it, it's the it's the right it's the rights of each spouse. But on the, on the other end, it's also um, it's it's a duty of each spouse to ensure the other person's um, physical and emotional security within that. Right. So not having a particular formula for what's expected um, out of a sexual relationship. But, you know, looking at the marriage relationship very early on to see how do we build this um, trust between us and seeing sex as a tool to actually build that love and build that intimacy rather than separate from that. And, you know, taking it step taking it step by step in terms of um, focusing on the woman on a woman's need for affection and a woman's need for playfulness and um, both. Um, both uh, spouses and within a relationship have emotional needs and making sure that, you know, you're serving the emotional needs of the other person. You know, this comes back to like exploring what their love language is and really seeing, uh, you know, seeing how they express love to you and expressing it back to them in the same way, caring for them and, you know, ac accounting for their needs in the same way. And, you know, that all builds um, the sexual intimacy that all builds in that bank account of trust between the, between the two spouses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I agree a hundred percent. I think that, you know, some easy ways for people, and you can tell me what you think as well, uh, some easy ways for people to build that emotional intimacy with their partner is just even going on a walk, right? Yeah. Going on a walk, holding hands, um, kissing, cuddling, right? On a couch or mm -hmm doing something, something experiential that builds that uh, closeness. You could be cooking dinner together. You could uh, be doing something that just is the two of you and um, and creates that emotional intimacy. You know, there have been studies that have been done on mindfulness. Where do you think mindfulness plays into this with creating emotional intimacy? Um, so in terms of mindfulness, uh, even going back to you know um, the cognitive behavioral approach um, to um, uh, to sexual intimacy, mindfulness can be very helpful in terms of um, kind of teaching yourself a, um, step by step the the, the parts of emotional intimacy um, and. Um, being present with each other uh, when you're exploring intimacy, and you know sometimes uh, like doing it gradually, you know, doing mm -hmm. it, doing things that we may not even consider um, uh, foreplay, um, but doing those things and stopping, and doing a little bit more next time and stopping, and just like we talk about sometimes eating, mindful eating, right? Doing it slowly, uh, paying attention to the act. Um, these are all these are all very very helpful. Yeah, um, I don't know if you've heard of sensate focus, uh, but sensate focus in as it relates to intimacy is just that it's it's a stepwise process where yes. you are you touch slowly and you each yeah. day, even if you want to go further, you don't go further. Correct. And yeah. you're just touching for the sake of yourself for mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, what it feels like for you. And I think that that modality is really important and very helpful for somebody say that if they've never had intercourse or, you know, they've experienced trauma or all of those things or any of those things, I think that sensei focus is, 
is a great modality to help somebody get back into self-exploration and also exploration of their partner and getting used to the senses and feeling what it what something feels like, tastes like, you know, what you're hearing and just really being in tune with your own body. Yeah. A lot of times when we talk to people about spending time on, you know, one spouse and really like exploring what they like, what they don't like and expressing that. If you think about it, we're not using the same, we don't use the same terms for that. But if you think about the psychological terms, you are becoming very, very aware of what you're experiencing, what you like, what you don't like. And the other partner really paying attention to that experience in that moment. And you can, you know, take turns doing that, but, you know, especially um, placing emphasis on the woman's experience of it and spending time, um, both partners, spending time on uh, on your experience and what you like and what you don't like. And that is becoming very, very mindful instead of kind of going through it as a rote act and you know doing only one part of it, like what touch feels good? What do I like? What do I don't not like? And it is very important to know and have and have an inventory in your mind of your of your spouse's preferences and knowing that it changes over time and kind right. of having having that time with each other so that you do know that. And, you know, the idea of like dating your spouse always um, and really um, putting a lot of importance on that relationship. You know, we talked about how the marital relationship, especially once you become parents, knowing that you have to come back and strengthen that relationship above all other relationships that, you know, children feel more secure in a, in, in a family where the parents relationship is strong. So having a you know, prioritizing that relationship, I also see a lot of you know traditional families where you know, they say, okay, my role right now primarily is as a mother or as a father, and um, really, um, especially when the children are young, it's very tempting to say we have to prioritize that. But always remembering that you know, the health of the family is you know very is very dependent on the health of the marriage and health of the family dynamics. Right, I think that that's so important, and I think that really focusing on your relationship, right? In the end, that is what is going to make it stronger. And uh, there've been studies that say that the most important aspect in a relationship is communication. So when you feel safe enough to have an open communication with your partner, then that will only build that emotional intimacy and create a stronger relationship. So I think that's so important. And uh, I think that goes very well with women that perhaps have experienced trauma in a relationship or being sexually intimate with somebody in the past to help them move forward in a new relationship or in their current one and to uh, feel safe and have that emotional intimacy grow. So fantastic. Yeah, women feel very alone. Like whenever I talk with them, they think it's so unusual to have, you know, a past marriage or a past sexual trauma um, that haunts them. And it, it's and whether it's in, in the Muslim community or outside, um, this is the reality of being a woman um, in, in the world sometimes, unfortunately. And I think it's important to not feel alone, not feel um, like this experience is completely outside and that, you know, you feel isolated for it. I think there to know that there's hope and that there's yeah. Um, you know, you can, there's, um, a, a, you know, gynecologists who are experts in sexual health and trauma and um, the experience, the, uh, the experiences can be uh, helped with not just therapy, but also, you know, getting referrals to um, pelvic um, PT and a lot of these other resources women don't hear a lot about. Right, right. Actually, you know, that's, I agree with that 100%. I think that, you know, that- Pelvic PT, just like therapy, you know, it, it's that gradual desensitization. Um, right. it, can, it can be done right. physically, it can be done. It's, just, it's a very holistic approach. 
Yeah, no, I think that um, the ideal triad for anyone experiencing sexual, any type of sexual dysfunction is to have a physician that's comfortable with sexual medicine, have a pelvic floor therapy, a pelvic floor therapist, and then also see a sex therapist. And then I think that having those three uh, individuals really helps in addressing the person's um, concerns in a holistic manner because you're addressing that whole biopsychosocial component of sexual medicine. So I think that that's exactly. really important. And you know, I know a lot of people when, when I can, they come to me, like they've maybe expressed it to somebody, maybe like a male a physician who said, you know, there's not much really much we can be, we can do about that, or we don't know much about that. Um, and it's not really true because it's just, we, we just don't get exposed to it in our train, in our traditional training. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, we are almost done here. So please tell the audience how they can get in touch with you. You know, they've been listening to you and they're curious as to how they can work with you, how they can get in touch with you. So it'd be great if you could let our audience know. Yeah. Um, and I also have a blog within my website too, that I try to put out and, um, I do, um, talks in the area. Um, I, I do like teaching in general and I do like talking about psychological wellness. So a lot of it, the connection can be made through my you know, website, which is peace tree mental health, which is my practice. And it's peacetreementalhealth.com. And you can even just Google my name, Sanjana Kareem, and it should come up. And uh, I do see patients only in California right now, but hopefully I can, I uh, hope to put out, you know, more educational material that's, you know, a little bit more inclusive for everybody. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues with your sexual health or experiencing any type of sexual trauma and need help, please seek out a healthcare provider that can assist you. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.